So we're back in Genesis, and um, we kind of got through a little bit of 12, talking about the covenant last week, how God chose Abram and Sarai to come out of his land, come out of his family, come out of his country, his father's house, to bless him and to give him a land, to make him a great nation, to make his name great, and um, to be None of that to be a blessing, not just to be blessed, but to be a blessing to all the families of the earth. Speaking of the seed that we've been talking about since the garden and um, the fall and how how, uh, God promised a seed to Eve, went through all the way down through Noah, kept mankind going through Noah so that that seed could come through all the way down through Seth and... um, now down to Abram, and uh, that seed, the Messiah, who would reconcile and redeem and restore mankind from sin and death. So as Abram sojourns through the land, God shows him all that he will do for him, and Abram makes altars there. We read about that in the first nine verses of chapter 12. Wherever God would appear to him, wherever God would talk to him, He'd make an altar out of worship, out of gratitude, out of praise, knowing that uh, you know, he's a sinner and makes an offering and sacrifice to God in those places. And God makes that covenant with Abram. This is the beginning, and next week it'll be a lot more to do with the covenant. And uh, God establishes it, an absolute covenant. Um, and then Abram, it says, calls on the name of the Lord, and begins a one-on-one relationship with the Lord. And, um, you know, calling on the name Jehovah. And so we pick it up this week in, in chapter 12, starting in verse 10, for what's just a really interesting story, but really short, and not much to it other than the fact that it just surprises you how, how uh, and yet at the same time it shouldn't, because we're all weak. We all have uh, feet of clay, as it were. And we are made jars of clay, vessels that uh, are easily stumbled and and all that. So anyway, verse uh, 10. Now there was a famine in the land, and Abram went down to Egypt to dwell there, for the famine was severe in the land. And it came to pass, when he was close to entering Egypt, that he said to Sarai, his wife, Indeed, I know that you are a woman of beautiful countenance. Therefore, it will happen when the Egyptians see you that they will say, This is his wife, and they will kill me, but they will let you live. And so please say that you're my sister, that it may be well with me for your sake, and that I may live because of you. So it was when Abram came into Egypt that the Egyptians saw the woman, that she was very beautiful, and the princes of Pharaoh also saw her and commended her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken to Pharaoh's house. And he treated Abram well for her sake. He had uh, sheep and oxen, male donkeys, male and female servants, and female donkeys and camels. But the Lord plagued Pharaoh and his house with a great plagues um, because of Sarah, Abram's wife. So uh, Pharaoh calls Abram and says, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister? I might have taken her as my wife. Now, therefore, here's your wife. Take her. Go your way. So Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. He has his guys escort him right out of the land. Um, So whatever those plagues were, it says they were severe. Um, So there's this severe famine up in Canaan where Abram was sojourning. And so he goes to Egypt. um, And Abram fears that they'll kill him for his wife because she's very beautiful, as we read. And so he says, you know, let's lie to them. Let's tell them that you're my sister, and then they won't kill me. But then why wouldn't they take take her from him? It just didn't make sense. Um, So out of fear, he he makes this plan. Pharaoh only treated Abram well for Sarah's sake. So it actually turned out for the benefit of Abram for, for... coming into all these goods and camels and slaves and servants and all. But um, he plagues Pharaoh, says it's a very great plague, and it's not only Pharaoh but his whole household because of Sarah, Abram's wife. 
And Pharaoh sends him away. What's the moral of the story? Well, first off, don't go after another man's wife, period. Um, It is adultery, plain and simple. But even more so around the household of faith. Abram and Sarah were, were, Sarai were blessed. God says, whom blesses you, I will bless. Whoever curses you, I will curse. You start messing around with one of the daughters of Sarai, who are 50% of us here tonight, plus or minus. Um, You know, God's going to bless who blesses him. He's going to curse who curses him. It is not going to end well for you. On the other hand, there's the other side of the story. Abram kind of brought it on himself and uh, lies and basically says, she's just my sister, so what's the big deal? Well, then if that's the case, what's the moral of that story? Don't be lying about your situation. I mean, don't be coming off as though you're available and willing when, in fact, you're married. And so these are the simple morals of the story, and it shouldn't have to be said, but that's it. I mean, if you find yourself, you know, after that kind of destruction, that kind of aftermath, you know, marriages that are are destroyed and so forth because of these things, you know, then know that Jesus is the God of second chances. Um, He's in the business of second chances. Acknowledge your sin. um, Repent. Reconcile if possible. If not, you know, make restitution if possible. And once you've done all that you can, then be free to walk in God's grace and his mercy. You know, a lot, of, a lot of marriages have been destroyed in the society that we live for so many reasons. And so it's an it's a interesting little story. Um, this isn't going to be the last time that this happens, and we'll find out a little bit more about how this really came to be um, as we see it happen again in a few chapters and how it even carries on this particular uh, fault of Abram's becomes genetic, he passes it on to Isaac, and Isaac says, hey, Rachel, you know, um, maybe uh, you could tell him you're my sister so that we don't get killed. The same thing happens to Abram's son. Um, so it's an interesting beginning, and it's, there'll be more to that as we go. But picking up chapter 13, I'll read through it, and we'll come back. Uh, then Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife, and all that they had, and Lot with him, to the south. Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and gold, and he went on his journey from the south as far as Bethel, to a place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai. If you remember, that's where he'd built one of the altars. Verse 4, to the place where of the altar, which he had made there at first. And there Abram called on the name of the Lord. Lot also, who went with Abram, had flocks and herds and tents, Now the land was not able to support them that they might dwell together for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. And the Canaanites and the Perizzites also dwelled there in the land. And so they're running out of room. Uh, Verse 8, Abram said to Lot, Please let there be no strife between you and me and between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we're brethren. Is not the whole land before you? Please separate from me, and if you take left, and then I'll go right. Or if you go to the right, then I'll go to the left. So Lot lifts up his eyes, and he saw all the plain of the Jordan that was well watered everywhere before the Lord had destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. And it was like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt as you go down towards Zoar. Then Lot chose for himself all the plain of Jordan, And Lot journeyed east, and they separated from each other. Abram dwelt in the land of Canaan, and Lot dwelt in the cities of the plain, and pitched his tent even as far as Sodom. But the men of Sodom were exceedingly wicked and sinful against the Lord. And and the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Lift up your eyes now and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, and westward. For all the land which you see I give to you and your descendants forever. And I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if a man could number the dust of the earth, then your descendants also could be numbered. Arise, walk in the land throughout its length and its width, for I give it to you. Then Abram moved his tent and went and dwelt in the terebinth trees of Mamre, and the, and, uh, which are in Hebron, 
and built an altar there to the Lord. Verses 1 through 4, he goes back to Bethel. Now, the word Bethel means house of God. Anytime you see Beth, like Bethlehem is house of bread. Um, Bethel is the house of God, Beth-el. Throughout the Old Testament, Bethel is a place where they would inquire of the Lord. It's the place where Jacob had his vision. You'll see that in a few chapters down the line, um, that vision of the ladder to heaven. Samuel held court there when they would come to him for, to inquire of the Lord. Uh, but also some would worship false gods there. Uh, Jeroboam would set up altars and golden calves and worship Baal and Bethel and elsewhere around Israel. Bethel means the house of God, but now they had put false gods there with Jeroboam. And just the point being is, you know, Bethel is the house of God. A lot of people say, well, it's church. A lot of people say it's the building. Um, and they, you know, they don't necessarily follow the Lord. They're there to go to the house. They're there to go to their church services, but they're not there to go and meet the, the God of the house. They're not there to give their life to the Lord and have a one-on-one with him. Um, you don't even need a church building to do that. You can do that going down the highway. You can do that uh, at home. You can do that when you're out in the woods. Wherever you go, God is with you. You don't need a church building. And so it's, it's a place where Abram offers his sacrifice to the Lord, and Abram is drawing close to the Lord. It's, it's worship to the Lord, and that's what we do here. Um, you know, if you're here for any other reason, you're getting ripped off, plain and simple, because, you know, it's the Lord that we worship. It's not the building. It's not the place that we meet. It's our fellowship is good, and we like that, and that's part of what he has called us to do is have fellowship with one another. But so many, um, you know, make it a religion instead of a relationship with the Lord. There are those that appear very religious, and Jesus said they draw near to him with their lips, but their hearts are far from them. And they trust in their traditions. They trust in their religious, um, whatever's been handed down to them, baptized as babies, and then they carry that on um, one generation to the next, trusting in that tradition of men rather than personally knowing God and having a relationship with him. And, you know, you have that through the whole counsel of God's word. You don't pick out what you like and understand and make a denomination out of it. And um, not that there's necessarily any, uh, you know, no believers that are in these denominations, but the difference would be if they truly seek the Lord and not are trusting in their their traditions. Now is the time to have a one-on-one with the Lord. If you're not, you know, whatever other motive you're here for, like I said, you're getting ripped off. Verses 5 through 13, where um, Abram and Lot begin to increase. You got a lot of sheep, too many sheep, and so much grass, and you need to find more grass, and there's even others living there. He talks about the the parasites and um, the other guys there, uh, parasites and uh, Canaanites dwelling in the land also that have need of that land, and so there's too much going on. The Lord's blessing, and they're growing. Abraham allows Lot first choice, and so he takes the choicest. And if they want to bring up that map uh, we talked about uh, last week as well, there's a very fertile area there now, as you see the Dead Sea and, uh, and all that, and where that was before, Sodom, like I said, before the Lord had judged Sodom and Gomorrah, that was all just lush, green all the way from the Sea of Galilee, all the way down, it said, as far as Zoar of Egypt, which is down, getting down toward the southern end of that. Now, we'll read that there were tar pits down there, even before God had judged, but uh, that was down to the south. That whole stretch was just lush, green, fertile. But it says the men that were living there were exceedingly wicked against the Lord. Lot chooses that area, and he goes and dwells down, not in Sodom. He's just kind of dwelling in the plain, and, um, it, but uh, not there in Sodom yet. Lot didn't seem to mind dwelling around a city where the men were exceedingly wicked. And not only just exceedingly wicked, but exceedingly wicked against the Lord specifically. You know, in uh, verses 14 through 18, um, Abram says, or the Lord says to Abram, now you look around what's left 
and what I've given you. And you can actually see on the map a little bit towards uh, the Mediterranean Sea, and you get past that mountain range where Bethlehem and, and uh, Jerusalem and, and um, uh, Beersheba and all those are along that top of that mountain ridge down towards the lake or the, uh, the Mediterranean Sea. It gets very fertile and all. And so Abraham lifts up his eyes, looks north, south, east, and west, and the Lord shows him the land, and he walks around in the land, and the um, Lord promises it to him, continues to reinforce that covenant. And not only that with him, but he says, with your descendants, and don't let us skip your notice. When he says it about the land, every time, it's forever. It's not just until they blow it. It's forever. And like we talked about last week, whenever um, Israel would you know, backslide or fall away or start worshiping false gods like Jeroboam, you know, putting up these altars. You know, then the Lord would say, for the sake of my uh, servant Abraham, for the sake of your forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so Lord was faithful to that promise that he made with them. So um, God showed Abram the land, promised his descendants, but God takes responsibility on this side of the covenant. He is saying, I will give it to you. This is after, once again, Abram and Lot separate. So Lot is, or Abram's complete, completely separated from all of his family. He's come out from among them. He's come out to the Lord. And again, his response was to build an altar at Bethel again, sacrifice to the Lord. Moves on to Hebron after that, as we read, and he builds an altar there. Um, as we see, it's always a response after the Lord shows him something that he sets up an altar and worships and glorifies the Lord. It, the God who chose him out, separated him to himself and blessed him, just like he chose us out of the world and we're to be separate. We come out of the world, we leave that behind. And worship is a response. It's not necessarily because our lives are free from trouble and that we have perfect health but because of that promise of eternal life. Abram received the promise, and he worshiped the Lord. You and I, we have the promise of eternal life. And what's our worship? What's our sacrifice? Well, the sacrifice of praise. And we'll see that at the end of the study tonight. Um, like Abram, still had no children, but he worshiped God because of that promise, and he believed God. And uh, so if you want to, we'll pick up in chapter 14. It came to pass in the days of, I'm going to just caution you ahead of time, the word, the, this pronunciation is just not going to work for me, but I'll try. Um, the days of Amraphel, the king of Shinar, um, Ariok, the king of Alisar, Chedalormer, that's Chedalormer's an important guy, i got to pronounce that correctly, um, king of Elam and Entitled the king of nations or the king of the Gentiles, the Goim, that they made war with Bera, the king of Sodom, Bersha, the king of Gomorrah, uh, Shinab, the king of Adma, Shemabur, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. All these joined together in the valley of Siddim, that is the Salt Sea. Twelve years they served Chedlorimer, and in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, uh, Chedlomer and the kings that were with him came and attacked the Rephaim in Ashtaroth, Karnaim and the Zuzim in Ham, and the Emim in Sheva Kiratham, and the Horites in the mountain of the Seir as far as El Paran, which is by the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and attacked all the country of the Amalekites also the Amorites who dwell in Hazen Tamar, and the king of Sodom, and the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is, Zoar, went out and joined together in this battle in the valley of Siddim against Chedlorimer, uh, king of Elam, Tidal, king of nations, Armraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, the king of Alazar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Siddim was full of tarp, tar pits, asphalt pits, and the king of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, and some fell there, and remain, the remainder fled to the mountains. 
Well, then they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, Abram's brother's son, who dwelt in Sodom and his goods and departed. And then one had escaped and told Abram the Hebrew, for he dwelt by the terebinth trees of Mamre, and the Amorite, brother of Eshcol, and brother of Aner, and they were allies with Abram. And now when Abram heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed his 318 trained servants who were born in his house. He went to pursuit as far as Dan, and he divided his forces against them by night. And he and his servants attacked them and pursued them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus. And he brought back all the goods and also brought back his brother Lot and his goods, as well as the women and the people. And the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Sheva, that is the king's valley, after his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him. I'm going to stop there. If you want to put that other map up, um, this one kind of shows way over to the uh, right hand. Remember, that's where we talked about uh, Possibly they thought the Garden of Eden, but also the plains of Shinar, the Tower of Babel, that stretch over by uh, you know west or eastern Iraq and Kuwait and Iran, that whole valley right there, and that also was very fertile. Remember, we talked about how the nations uh, before the Tower of Babel they all huddled down in there and had their farms. You know, by then hundreds of thousands, um, and then it shows it goes way up to, to Haran, and Abram went up there with Lot. And Haran uh, uh, was the one brother that died, and uh, Nahor. And so they, then Abram was separated from them, goes down to that other stretch. Now, if you look at all the nations, they're down at the bottom right, the green letters is the nations, you know, Chedorlaomer and all those with him. They're the ones from Shinar, that whole area, crossing that whole desert, crossing that whole area, going across to the Western Confederacy, the kings of Sodom and all their ones that were named. And you can see that war that would have taken place for that other fertile valley. Now, Chedorlaomer was probably, you know, if he's king, he's probably collecting taxes. You know, he's probably going in there and taking the goods from Sodom and Gomorrah. And eventually that gets old and they rebel. And uh, they start to say, well, we're, we don't want to pay no, any more taxes. And so the kings that were all on that side of things... Um, began to rebel and make war. War breaks out. Now, one thing to notice, if you didn't notice this, Abram had allies. Didn't God say, I'll bless those that bless you? And didn't he say, I'll make you a blessing to others? And here, all these guys are at war. All these guys are uh, um, going after it. But here's Abram, just blessed. And those around him, allies of his, um, Abram dwelled as a sojourner among these. He didn't set up a kingdom or anything like that. And those around him became his allies. Now Lot, we saw how no longer has he just gone down to camp in the plains of, of, of the Jordan Valley. Well, he had by now already moved in to the city of Zodom, Sodom, uh, if you notice as we read through that. So he literally at first just went down to dwell in the plains. He saw how nice they were. But then he's not afraid to dwell right outside of the city of exceedingly wicked men against the Lord. And now he's so used to it, so dull to the conviction about any of the wickedness, that he's living right in town. And that will progress even further. You know, they may have lived in a lush, green paradise um, of Sodom and Gomorrah at that time. But they were subject to this, this king. And... Um, you know, just like today, the higher the, uh, or the, the more lush the property, the higher your taxes are. The more, uh, more like paradise it is, the closer you get to the, the nice areas, the higher cost of living goes. And we know that we're not too bad up here, but take what we make and go out and try and live in California, and it doesn't last very long. Um, so some of these guys end up fleeing, falling into tar pits, Everyone else is taken captive. And if you look at that map, you see how far down from Sodom down there, and even Mount Seir talks about that. And they start taking them captive, going all the way back up to Haran. 
and we're going to take him back over to their kingdoms in Shinar in that area. And Abraham pursues him with his 300-some guys all the way up past Damascus, which is right up at the very top of the map, in order to, to get his nephew back and uh, to rescue that and to recover all the goods. Now, in Israel today, they've uncovered a, uh, a building, a gate in Tel Dan, and it's the city of Dan that's talked about here. They put this large canopy over it because it's, it's uh, made of mud, dried or sun-dried mud bricks. It's not made of any kind of, uh, you know, baked, fired brick or anything like that. But it's the, from that era. It's this, the gate to the city of Dan, 4,000 years old. So they put this canopy over the whole thing to prevent the elements because the sun would, and the wind would, it would crumble. The rain would wash it away. If exposed to the elements, it would be gone. And you can go see it today. You can go see a 4,000-year-old structure that still remains. They had to backfill it so that it wouldn't crumble in. And um, it's in Tel Dan. So we get to verse 18. Um, and the point being that that would be where Abram actually went. You can go see a place where Abram passed through. Um, but verse 18, Genesis 14 we run into this interesting um, king. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. And he was a priest of God Most High. First time that phrase shows up in Scripture. He blessed them, blessed him, and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he gave him a tithe of all. And those three verses, um, Melchizedek, the word Melchizedek simply means my king is Zedek, which is translated king of righteousness. He's also the king of Salem, which is the king of peace. When you go to Israel today, you say shalom. Shalom is peace. Salom, salami. Um, that's a name, not the sausage. means peace. Um, in Psalm 76, just to point out a few things to see who exactly we're talking about here, this Melchizedek, because I'm sure right off the bat you thought we've seen that name before. And this is where Abram runs into him. Just a couple of verses here. Um, to talk about exactly what this city of Salem is. In Judah, God is known. His name is great in Israel. In Salem also is his tabernacle and his dwelling place in Zion. We talked about Zion when we went through chapter, or Psalm verse 2, uh, chapter 2, we might get there uh, tonight. Um, but the idea here is where is this Salem? Well, it's modern day Jerusalem or David's day, Jerusalem. The word priest means Kohan, and I'm sure you've heard of the Kohens, um, and the, Co the, name, the Jewish name Kohen comes from the priesthood. And he's the Kohen, he's the priest of the Most High God of Israel against their enemies of any size, any strength, and then of any false gods. Uh, Most High God means El Elyon, which means supreme, in elevation above all else. And so this is the God who, well, let's look at Deuteronomy 32 if you want to flip back there. Just one verse, verse 8. When Moses sang his song, declaring the characteristics of God most high, he says, when the most high divided their inheritance into the nations when he separated the sons of Adam, he sent boundaries of the peoples. According to the number of the children of Israel, he set these boundaries. In verse 7, he's saying, Remember these days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father and he'll show you, your elders, and they will tell you. That, that was passed down from Abram down through and now to Moses and the children of Israel. Throughout the Psalms, as the Most High God of Israel, it's declared that, like I said, he is against the enemies is when he's talked about because they had their gods. All these uh, other surrounding nations, they had their false gods and small g, 
and um, that this is the Most High God, and uh, always in context uh, against their enemies. Psalm 46, and we're going to just read through it because we're talking about the nature and characteristic of the Most High God and his priest, this Melchizedek, as we learn about him. God is our refuge and our strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore we will not fear, even though the earth be moved and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea through its waters roar, though its waters roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake its, with its swelling, Selah, there is a river whose stream shall make the glad the city of God, the holy place of the tabernacle of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God shall help her just at the break of dawn. The nations rage. The kingdoms were moved. He uttered his voice. The earth melted. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Selah. Come now, or come behold the works of the Lord, who has made desolations in the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariot with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Selah. This is the Most High God. Melchizedek, coming out of Salem, is the priest, the high priest of the Most High God. Psalm 47, O clap your hands, all you peoples. Shout to God with the voice of triumph. Why? For the Lord Most High is awesome. He is the great king over all the earth. He will subdue the peoples under us, the nations under our feet. He will choose our inheritance for us, the excellence of Jacob, whom he loves, Selah. God has shown up with a shout, the Lord with a shout of a trumpet. Sing praises to God, sing praises. Sing praises to our king, sing praises. For God is the king of all the earth. Sing praises with understanding. God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. The princes of the people have gathered together, the people of God of Abraham. For the shields of the earth belong to God. He is greatly exalted. All these nations from the flood and after and then the Tower of Babel as they're spreading out, there's only one most high God. And now we, we run across this Melchizedek, who is his priest. First time the word priest is used in the scriptures. First time we see of Melchizedek. First time we see anybody give anybody a tithe. There was always a uh, sacrifice. Abraham built altars and sacrifice. Well, now here's a priest of the Most High God, and he, he gives him a tenth of all that he has. Um, in uh, Genesis 14, 19 through 20, it says he's the possessor of heaven and earth. Let's read it again, um, just verses 19 and 20. He blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be the God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Now, Melchizedek also declares that God delivers Abram from his enemies. And then Abraham does a few things. He, he tithes the first fruits. Now, Abel gave the first fruits of his flocks. His flock, Noah, the first fruits of those seven pairs of clean animals that God brought out. And also Abram's altars in Morel and Bethel and Mamre. All these to the Lord, but now a tenth to the priest of the Most High God. The, this Melchizedek is only mentioned twice in the entire Old Testament, and that means we've got to go look at the other place. That's going to be Psalm 110. And we're starting to get a little close to where we're going with this. Many of the Psalms are prophetic Psalms. And many are specific towards the Messiah. And uh, we learn a lot about, like we did a few weeks back in Psalm 22, the perspective from the cross that Jesus had in Psalm 22, all prophetic. But now we see this Melchizedek. Verse 1, The Lord said to my Lord, 
Well, that's an interesting there. Sit at my right hand, and I will make, or until I make your enemies a footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people shall be volunteers in the day of your power, in the beauties of holiness from the womb of the morning. You have the dew of your youth, and the Lord has sworn, and he will not relent. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He shall execute kings in the day of his wrath. He shall judge among the nations. And he shall fill the places with dead bodies. And he shall execute the heads of many countries. And he shall drink of the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he shall lift up the head. Um, he's a priest forever. Priest forever means olam, perpetual, everlasting, always. But it also means always from the past and always in the future. In other words, everlasting in all time past and eternity and all time past, uh, future into eternity. Who is he talking about? A priest forever. Now, after the order, the word order, there is an estate, a manner, a purpose, a cause. You know, the position, if you will, that order of Melchizedek. You know, who's he talking about? The Lord there is Jehovah. My Lord is Adon, where you get Adonai, or master, owner. So we're not talking about another king. David had uh, no king when he wrote this, um, except the Lord. So he says, the Lord said to my Lord, it's not another king, it's not any man, it's not an angel. Angels are not to be worshipped or to have Lord, you know, to be your Lord or your king. So clearly he's talking about the Messiah. The Lord said to my Lord, and uh, we'll get into this in a little bit. Um, verse 4 says, the Lord has sworn and will not relent. When we saw how he swore by himself, when he made his covenant with Abram, because there's none greater to swear by, he says, the Lord has sworn. Not only that, he will not relent. Once it's, you know, he's like we sang tonight, like we talked about last week, there's no shadow of turning. There's no changing or shifting around by the Lord. We can put our trust in him. God does not change. Melchizedek, after the order of Melchizedek. From, for this, we have to go to Hebrews, and we're going to be going through a few chapters. Uh, primarily in chapter 5. The book of Hebrews is written to the Hebrews to show them from the Old Testament. I believe Paul was the writer. But from the Old Testament scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah and fulfilled the prophecies and is the priest of the Most High God after the order of Melchizedek. And because from what we read in Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, you will be um, a priest after the order of Melchizedek, well, then Abraham saw the Lord, didn't he? He saw our, our, our Jesus when he saw Melchizedek. It's what they call a Christophanes, an, an appearance in, in the Old Testament of our Lord. And um, Hebrews 5, it's, it's uh, again, chapter 1, talks about Jesus, God's Son, Quoting among others, Psalm 2, and we'll get to that later, it says, you, you are my son, today I have begotten thee. In chapter 2 of Hebrews, Jesus is made man, then crowned with glory. He sanctifies us. Talks about the seed of Abraham, the seed that promised to Eve down through Seth, Noah, Shem, and now Abram. Made like us, talks about in chapter 2, and tempted like us, so he can be a faithful and merciful high priest. In chapter 4 in Hebrews, he talks about the rest that we can have in Jesus because he knows our weakness and because he is a merciful high priest. In chapter 4, he knows our weakness and he offered himself the offering for our sin so that we can come boldly to the throne of grace. The, the whole point of chapter 4, so that we can come boldly to that throne of grace because he knows our weakness. But chapter 5 begins to talk about his priesthood. And the first verse here, if you're looking for a definition of what a priest is, you know, past, present, or future, for every high priest 
was taken from among men, and here's the definition. He's appointed for men in the things pertaining to God that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sin. Definition of a priest. In the further definition details, he can have compassion on those who are ignorant, going astray, and going astray since he himself is also subject to weakness. Because of this, he is required, as for the people, so also for himself, to offer sacrifices for sin. And no man takes this honor to himself, but he who is called by God, just as Aaron was. So what Paul's saying to the Hebrews is, you, you have your priest, this high priest. You know, he's taken from among man so that he can have compassion, so that he can make offerings for sin. He has to make offerings for himself as well. And uh, because he's also weak. But so Christ also in verse 5. He says uh, he did not glorify himself to become high priest. But it was he who said to him. In other words he only said as the father gives to me that's what I do. You are my son today I have begotten you. That's Psalm 2. As he also says in another place. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from his death and was heard because of his godly fear. Well, that's the Lord. Remember, he'd often go off to pray by himself and in Gethsemane with great tears, sweating great drops of blood and vehement cries. You know, he knew of the sufferings that were coming to him. Verse 8, he was a son Yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. He knew that he was subject to the Father, and the things that he suffered he had to. In verse 9, having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. He completed all of it so that we could have eternal life. Um, Verse 10, God called him. He was called by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek, of whom we have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing. Well, you know, that's our Psalm 110, verse 4. And verses 11 through 14, the rest of chapter 5, you know, he's talking to these guys, you're dull of hearing. There's so much more to explain, uh, but the, the Hebrews, they're just hard-hearted. And he wants to get into it, and he will. If you flip over to chapter 6, verse 13 through 20, For when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself. That's that unconditional covenant. Saying, surely I will bless you, and multiplying, I will multiply you. So after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. I don't want to lose my place here. There we go. Um, And for men indeed swear by the greater. An oath for confirmation is for them and end of all dispute. We read where the Lord swore by himself because there's none greater. Thus God determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel confirmed by an oath. In other words, it cannot change. Immutable. That's once and for all. That by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie that we might have a strong consolation who had fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil, where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. And we'll see back in Genesis in the following chapters next week and on, Abraham did receive the promise of a son, Isaac, God swore by himself because there's none greater and he cannot lie. He cannot lie. Put that on your heart. If you still have room on your refrigerator from all the other stuff I'm telling you to put on your refrigerator, put that on your refrigerator. You know why they do that? Because that's where you go to get food and the spiritual foods. You get to see that first and then you can have the other stuff. We need food. We need to, you know, God's word feeds us. Abraham waited patiently for what the Lord had promised. We also now are waiting patiently for that hope that's set before us. That's what he's saying right here, that eternal life. And God cannot lie. Eternal life for us. God cannot lie. Put your hope in that. What is the anchor of our soul? Well, that Jesus is our high priest. 
the high priest of the Most High God, and he's offered himself for our sins, and we look to him for our refuge. He is both sure and steadfast, it says, and brings us into the presence of a holy God. He went first, and now we, in him, can enter into the presence of a holy God. Just for a little while? No. Again, it says he is the high priest forever. And there's never going to be an end. That, that cleansing, that washing, that salvation that we have inherited and that we have in him, it's forever. And once again, at the end of it, after the order of Melchizedek, and this is important, what he says here. Here's this guy, he had no beginning and he had no end. Now he goes into that in, in chapter 7. And we'll just keep reading it because it really explains Melchizedek better than I could. And um, so just the first three verses. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth of all, first being translated king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, meaning the king of peace, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, and he remains a priest continuously. You know, that's that, you know, why would Abraham give him a tenth? Why would he honor him so highly? Well, because Melchizedek was the king of righteousness and the king of peace, but more than that, look what it says in verse 3. He had no mother, had no father, no genealogy, no beginning, end of days. And it says he was like the Son of God. Well, we got to go back to Psalm 2, like we talked about, because that's what the writer of Hebrews is referring to and has in the past chapter that we read. Who does the Old Testament say that the Son of God is? You know, if you, you've, I'm sure you've heard this if you haven't been there, but on the inside of the Al-Aqsa, or the Dome of the Rock, not the Al-Aqsa, that's the mosque, but on the inside it says, God was never begotten, nor does he ever beget. Therefore, there is no Son of God, can't be. You've got a bad religion there, boys, if you're Christians. Well, obviously, that's not true. The Lord says, why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Who's the Lord's anointed? It says, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision and he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me, What? You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with the rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore you wise kings, all of them today. We don't think about kings except with king of England or something like that or some island over in Indonesia. There's kings. There's kings. The, the, the names behind the names, the ones who have all the money and the power. You know what? They're going to walk before the Lord. And why? Because of how they treated Israel. And it says it right here. You know, um, be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. It says, serve the Lord with fear and rejoicing and trembling. Kiss the sun lest he be angry and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled just a little bit. Blessed are all those who put their trust in him. You know, the Lord says, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. And the Hebrews, uh, it talks about Melchizedek is at forever. And at this point, he can only be the son of God. He can only be Jesus Christ, the king of righteousness, the king of peace. Also from Isaiah, the prince of peace. In verse 4, back in Hebrews, it says he goes on to explain the Levitical priesthood through Aaron, who has been born, or I should say who hasn't even been born yet, could never be perfect in the heavenly sanctuary for the eternal life. That priesthood that we'll you know, learn about as we get into Leviticus and Exodus and, 
and all in Deuteronomy, there's a priesthood that the Lord establishes, and it's only a picture. And much of the book of Hebrews talks about that. You can't do what needs to be done in eternity with just killing animals on earth. It needs to be a perfect sacrifice. It needs to be a life that has no beginning and no end. It has to be the perfect Lamb of God. And so in verse 4, he goes on to explain that Levitical priesthood could never be perfect enough. It could never be perfect in the heavenly sanctuary. In verse 16, uh, it says, in 17, it says, Who has come, not according to the law of fleshly commandment, like we talked about these other guys, but according to the power of an endless life? For he testifies, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. You know, it has to be an endless life. It has to be that sacrifice uh, for the sins of all the world in order for there to be a high priest in the kingdom for all eternity. Um, So um, God who swore will not relent. But it's funny, Melchizedek also brings bread and wine. Well, we know what that is, right? Every month we we have communion. In order to do what? Well, Jesus says, in order to remember... Not that it's any spooky kind of, you know, bread and wine that's going to change inside you or, or, you know, be changed by the priest into something else. It's just for remembrance. This is my body. This is my blood uh, given for you for the remission of sins. And do this in remembrance of me. And so that's the reason we do that. Nothing more. And it's important to do so because we forget that we need a Savior. Sometimes we think that we're able to do it on our own. And that's from Matthew 26. Um, it's got to be an endless life. And again, he, can, he will not relent. There's none greater. He swore by himself. Melchizedek brings bread and wine. What a picture. Back to Hebrews 7, verses 24 through 28. But he, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore, he is also able to serve the uttermost to the uttermost. I'm sorry, therefore he is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For such a high priest was fitting for us, who is holy, blameless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens, who does not need daily, as those high priests used to offer up sacrifices, Uh, for himself and for his own sins and for the people's in which he did once for all when he offered up himself. Jesus did once for all what they had to go back and do all the time for themselves and for all the people. For the law appoints as a high priest men who have weaknesses, but the word of the oath which came after the law appoints the son who has been perfected forever, as we read in Psalms. Verse uh, chapter 8, just the next two verses. Now this is the main point. I'm glad we got to the main point. And boy, when you're going through and studying Hebrews, it's good to see him get to the main point. Now this is the main point of the things we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in the heavens, a minister in the sanctuary of the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected and not man. What's the main point? Jesus is the high priest of the Most High God. He's our priest. Chapter 9, 23 and 28, 23 through 28. Therefore, it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heavens should be purified with these. And he's talking about those priests that they had to offer for themselves and had to offer. So these things all had to be purified, even just because they were copies of what, heaven was where Jesus went but the heavenly things themselves had to been better sacrifices than those and therefore Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands on earth which are copies of the true but he entered into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us not that he should offer himself often as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with the blood of another um he then would have to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once, at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself and has, and as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this the judgment, 
so Christ has offered once to bear the sins of many to those who eagerly wait for him. He will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. Not only the high priest, but even the sacrifice himself offered for our sins once for all our sins. And he appeared a second time. When he appears a second time, he will take us home to be where there is no more sin, separate from sin, apart from sin, for our salvation. Abraham knew this. If you flip to the next page, remember we always talk about Hebrews chapter 11, the hall of faith. Abraham is in here a lot. We're only going to pick out a couple verses, and we'll come back to it in weeks ahead, Lord willing. But just verses 8, 9, and 10, and then verse 16, it says, By Abraham... Or by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he dwelt in the land of promise, as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he waited for a city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Now if you go down to verse 16, But now they desire a better, that is, a heavenly country. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Remember what Melchizedek said to Abraham, or to Abram? He says, blessed be the God of Abraham, who has taken and destroyed his enemies. You know, it's a blessing to the Lord when we exercise and walk in our faith. It's, uh, you know... Melchizedek was the high priest of the God Most High. And uh, Melchizedek was, I believe, none other than our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the one I will make him. And the Lord said that I'll make him, you are my son, and today I'll be your father. Anyway, we did the Psalms that talk about that. The final thing is, we're priests also. In Revelation chapter 4, if you want to go there, I'm sorry, Revelation chapter 1. What's the definition of a priest? You know, the things pertaining to God, offering sacrifices. It says offering sacrifices for sin. That's the definition of a priest. Well, in Revelation chapter 1, verses 4 through 6, John said to the seven churches which are in Asia, Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Go to the chapter 5. That's us. What are we doing as priests? The things pertaining to God, offerings and sacrifices. Verses 8 through 10. Now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and every tongue, every people and every nation, and have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. You know, what is it that we do? Look at verse 11. Then I looked. And I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as were in the sea and all that are in them, I heard saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. Then the four living creatures said, Amen. And the 24 elders fell down and worshipped him who lives forever. What does a priest do? Well, a priest does the things pertaining to God. 
concerning offering and sacrifice. Only now it's the sacrifice of praise. And that praise is to the Lamb who's worthy. There is no more need for sacrifice for sin because he has done it once and for all. So as priests, what do we do? Well, we throw down our crowns and we worship and we praise him. Sacrifice of praise. Amen. Oh, Lord, thank you for your word. And uh, Lord, I just pray that uh, as much of a going through scriptures as this was tonight, I just pray that uh, by your Holy Spirit, it would you know, change how we look at you so that we could just worship and be free, be at rest, and that we could share who you are and what you've done for us with a lost and dying world. And I just pray that you would help us through that and do that. And Lord, again, we always want to lift up those who are not well, who are suffering and are just living with pain. Lord, we, we pray for them, ask that you would be comforting them, providing whatever possible things that could, could help them with that and relieve that. And Father, we just pray that you would be with them. And we just ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.